Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Amy Perko, current Executive Director of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics and a member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board. A Wake Forest University graduate, Amy was a three-time academic All-American and an All-ACC basketball player. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude in 1987 with a degree in history and went on to earn her master's degree from the University of Richmond. In 2012, Amy received the NCAA's prestigious Silver Anniversary Award given to six former college athletes to recognize their civic and professional contributions on the occasion of their 25th college graduation anniversary. Amy, thanks so much for joining me and the Positive Coaching Alliance audience today. Oh, Tina, it's great to be with you. Amy, uh, you're widely recognized as one of this country's leading experts on college sports issues, which I want to get to in a second, but I hope you'd sort of kick us off by telling our audience about your very first experiences playing sports. Wow, my my very first experience that... uh, you know, I can really remember I was always outside playing whatever games, kick the can, you know, whatever we were playing in our backyard or neighborhood. But uh, I remember my, you know, in the third grade, my, my oldest sister was trying out for the high school basketball team, and she taught me how to shoot a layup. And hmm. ever since then, I never looked back. That's awesome. So your older sister played a big role in your sort of first introduction to basketball. She she did just you know teaching me what she had learned in her tryout and and you know the girls playing basketball was a new thing then and and uh, so it wasn't something that I had watched a lot of basketball obviously on TV but um, not girls basketball and so even though she she went on to be cut uh, from the team unfortunately I, I uh, it was a passion. That, that I had, and so you could always find me in our driveway uh, shooting baskets uh, any, any time of the year. And, you know, but being involved in sports has always been an important part of my life, from growing up playing sports to uh, my opportunity at Wake Forest playing college basketball to uh, then my career working at the NCAA, uh, then working at University of Kansas in the athletics department, and then my work with with the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. And then I've also been involved throughout uh, my life as well in terms of coaching, and I've really enjoyed that as well. So you had the chance, you know, growing up playing sports and going on to play in college to be coached by a lot of different coaches. And one of the things we talk about at PCA is that the very best coaches, we call them double goal coaches, where they really prepare their players to win, um, goal number one, striving to win, and then they're also fantastic teachers of life lessons and that, you know, through basketball, through different sports, you actually learn a lot of life lessons that benefit you well, you know, well beyond the court. Um, and I'm curious if there are certain that, that stand out in your memory as, as really good double goal coaches who prepared you to win but also taught you those life lessons. You know, there, there really are, and it's, it's really neat. Just last month I had an opportunity to be back in my hometown. I was inducted into that county's uh, sports hall of fame and i had the fortunate opportunity to go pick up my high school coach and take her with me and uh 
recognize her as as one of those types of coaches that um, who she was a great coach with X's, X's and O's, but also helped us as young women during our uh, developmental stage in our life. And um, and actually earlier uh, that last year, I had an opportunity to go back to my high school. I was asked to be the commencement speaker. And in talk, thinking about what I would talk about with uh, the graduates um, of, of my high school, um, I knew I couldn't stray far from from sports and, and what I learned from uh, participating in sports. And I've used this analogy quite a bit. And it comes from everyone knows the basics of every good shooter knows the four basics of shooting the basketball. And it's balance and focus. And the third one is effort. And the fourth is follow through. Mm -hmm. And when you think about those things, that is really, those are the four steps you need to really be successful in anything in life. Mm -hmm. Having a good balance, having focus on what your goal is, facing the goal, and then showing some effort, extending yourself, showing effort, and then fourth, following through, making sure you finish it just right. And so, you know, that, uh, in terms of the steps of being a great shooter, and then applying those really to anything else you're trying to accomplish in life, I think is a really great analogy, and it always, you know, resonated with me, and I really try to follow that, and, it, and it's really been helpful in teaching, you know, how to shoot, uh, kids how to shoot, and just kind of walking them through those steps, and then, then talking about that in a broader way, about how they can apply those, those four steps throughout their life. So I know you're currently coaching your daughter's JV basketball team, and I'm curious how you incorporate that teaching of things like balance, focus, effort, and follow-through um, when there's so much else to coach. Um, what are some specifics of how you've done that with your team um, this season? Sure. Well, that's, Tina, I'd really like to thank you know, Positive Coaching Alliance for all the things that you all do because it, it, the resources have really benefited me as a parent uh, as well as as a coach. And, you know, I'm someone who's I've been involved with this all my life, so you would think that, you know, I would know just automatically some of the things that are in the Positive Coaching Alliance toolkit, but uh, there have been things that I've picked up and there have been things that I knew and then didn't really realize how important it might be to really focus on it. So things mm -hmm. just like, the you know, the five positive specific feedback and really focusing on that as a coach to give that positive and specific feedback. And mm -hmm. um, another resource that, you know, the, the, or, or, the, or another suggestion PCA has made has been, you know, the, the player circle at the end of the game where each player gives a specific uh, positive feedback to another teammate about something they did well during the game. And I've always incorporated that and have really seen the impact that just that that experience can make on players, particularly ones who might be a little bit reluctant at first and just want to slide by by saying, hey, everybody did a great job. But when you press them, now what's the one specific thing you can remember? Just the things that they do remember and then that, that teammate being the one, you know, the next game who's excited. Let me go first. Let me say it first. 
and, and just seeing how that does make an impact and how that brings a, a team together, um, that's another example of things that, uh, you know, I've taken from PCA that have really helped me as a, as a parent as well as as a coach. That's, it's really fulfilling for me to hear you say that. Thank you so much. I, I use that. We sometimes call it the winner's circle at the end of the game. I've used that with my high school field hockey players. And you're so right. Like, they want to get into that circle and stretch, and they already know what they want to say, you know, that specific positive about a teammate. And it's, you know, win or lose that you're hearing about things that the teammates did well, and um, it's a really powerful, powerful thing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, hearing about your experience when you first started playing sports um, to where things are today, so sort of reflecting on youth sports when, when you were playing to where youth sports is today, what do you think are some of the biggest changes to the, the culture and to the reality of youth sports in this country? Well, I think some of the biggest changes are things are so much organized at an earlier standpoint. Um, yeah. You know, so that's that's a big thing that, you know, p- players don't play as much in terms of organizing their own pickup game and, and figuring things out on their own. It's always in a more much more organized structure. Yeah. And and then with that, sometimes the downside of the organized structure then puts a lot of emphasis on the wins and losses um, uh, much earlier um, yeah. in, in someone's development. So I think uh, those are those are two big things. And then obviously the um, you know that leads into as well the specialization part. So yeah. you know that's. Um, you know, those are issues that, that I think we're all trying to figure out as, as parents as well as coaches is how to, how to create a balance and how to create, an, you know, an experience that can be healthy and, and still create, you know, a happiness early on of a joy of participating in sport as a youth and not to see it as um, a means to, a, to an end of a college scholarship or something like that because, um, you know, youth sports really should be about uh, the participation and, and all the joy of participating. Of course, once you move through it at a certain system, you know, there, it's great that there are opportunities to play in college, but, you know, that um, kind of those pressures early on and, and, and folks who, you know, want to start getting on the college scholarship circuit too early, I think, is a mistake. So this is um, a big issue right now. It just, you know, a few weeks ago there was a big article in the New York Times talking about young female athletes actually committing to specific colleges before they had even played on their high school team. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that and and what your take Mm -hmm. is on that and that that's happening. What's your opinion? Mm -hmm. Well, from the Knight Commission's perspective, I can speak to that because, you know, in the Knight Commission – our organization is an independent organization that has existed uh, for the most part to keep the college in college sports. And mm-hmm. um, the Knight Commission actually uh, talked about that, that particular issue of early recruiting and early commitments and early offers back in 2008. And mm-hmm. uh, at that time, our co-chairman wrote a letter to the NCAA recommending uh, legislation that would, you know, prohibit early offers prior to the time that um, written and binding offers could be made. So to mm-hmm. think those timelines, um, and, and it is a concern, and, and it's a concern when you see that 
coaches don't think it's healthy either but feel forced into the system. So I think there there definitely needs to be um, more, more constructive dialogue to see where we can um, improve the system. So again, that it's healthy for uh, the young people, healthy for uh, parents, and healthier for uh, the college coaches working in the system. What advice would you give a parent where they're starting to feel pressure from either coaches or, um, and when I say that I mean like club coaches or maybe even college coaches who are saying like your daughter ha- could be you know a Division One scholarship athlete if she focused right now in you know my sport, let's say it's basketball, and I'd like to see her specialize in basketball and let soccer go. Um, mm-hmm. What advice would you give to that parent and, and how they handle that situation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, and in every situation, obviously, you know, it, it, it can be unique and, and certainly uh, situations um, may have different, different circumstances that, that require Every, every family has to do what's, what they feel is best, but I would say don't, don't make that decision because you think that opportunity is not going to be there because there are lots of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I still am a great believer in how much you can learn from sports. And if, and if, a, if a young person has the talent and the interest in participating in more than one sport, um, I think it's healthy physically and mentally, uh, to be able to uh, transition and, and not get, uh, you know, not, not be a one-sport year-rounder, um, you know, if you have the interest, if the interest is there to participate in something else. So, you know, I know that that's, that's certainly an issue that, you know, I've, I've seen here as well, and we're starting to see some numbers of, uh, you know, fall off in certain sports where in the past there were multi-sport uh, participants and, and you're starting to see, you know, some of those sports uh, decrease in participation because of either year-round volleyball or year-round soccer or basketball. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's certainly something that, that every family has to is going to face that decision. But if, if the player is interested in playing more than one sport, um, that that's really, to me, what should be the deciding factor in terms of uh, the, the athletes. If they find joy in participating in, in more than one sport, then um, I'm for trying to make that happen because that really is ultimately what it should be all about. That's great. So, so sort of the athlete's interest is dictating it, not necessarily the parent saying it's time now for you to specialize. Um, I I know I have the opportunity to interview some really fantastic athletes who've gone on to Olympic careers and World Cup championships and, you know, a number of them played two or three sports into high school and some of them even into college. Um, And, you know, they really cherish that and feel like it helped them not burn out or, you know, have repetitive stress injuries. So they're right with you on that. Um, so, so you've been talking a little bit about your work with the Knight Commission, and I think you've been, been there, been the executive director since 2005, and I'm curious if you could tell our listeners um, what you feel like some of your biggest learnings have been about college sports and maybe some of the Knight Commission's biggest wins um, during your time there. Sure. Well, I'll, and I'll start with the, with the biggest, uh, one of the biggest wins uh, because it's been one of the more recent 
policy changes that the NCAA implemented, and um, and that was that the Knight Commission championed for a long time that many of the rewards uh, needed to be realigned with the values, and yeah. the specific policy initiative was that teams uh, to compete in a postseason championship, to, to have the opportunity to be named a national champion, uh, the team should at least be on track to graduate at least half their players. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, the NCAA did adopt that measure. Um, now, one of the, the learnings was that sometimes changes that seem so reasonable and common sense like that one, they take time. And so not to give up on it, because that particular recommendation was made in 2001. Wow. And it took, uh, when, when I began working with the Knight Commission, uh, it had led to um, the NCAA adopting some new um, metrics uh, that everyone felt were fairer to measure academic success and graduation rates than the federal graduation rate system. And so it took time for, you know, those to be in place and those to be in place for a number of years for then uh, the, the uh, leaders to be able to take that next step of uh, greater accountability um, using those metrics. So, again, that was a win, but it also was a great lesson in that, you know, it was a, it was a great concept from the beginning, but it just took time and consistent pressure and building coalitions, and, you know, even that standard, the great majority of teams met that standard. And so it mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, a standard that uh, had opposition because so many folks fell below it, but it just uh, it, it took a number of years to develop the support that, yes, in fact, this, this particular measure, its time had come, and uh, it would send a great message about, uh, realigning uh, a key incentive with the values. So have there been teams, I know it would be the rare exception to the rule, but have there been teams who have actually been denied access to the postseason because they fell below that 50% uh, mandate? There, there have been. And, yeah. um, and in fact, the year after that system went into place, uh, the University of Connecticut men's basketball team was a defending national championship, and they were the most high-profile team denied that opportunity to compete the following year. Mm-hmm. And there were uh, seven or eight other men's basketball teams that, that failed to meet that standard. And, and you know, the, 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 as I said, the great majority of teams uh, did meet that standard. Um, men's basketball and football have been the two sports in which the graduation rates have lagged behind the others. So, um, you know, compared to the other sports, that's where there have been some teams that have not met that standard and expectation. But the result has been what uh, what we thought it would be, was that when expectations are set, athletes respond, coaches mm-hmm. respond. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what athletes do. Uh, you know, that's what we do when – when we set goals as athletes to accomplish something individually and and for your team to accomplish something throughout the season. So um, we wouldn't expect anything differently when that academic expectation is set as well. 
That's great. That's great. So, um, you know, you mentioned your background at the University of Kansas and, and with the NCAA and now the Knight Commission. And so I was just sort of, I was curious with all of those years of experience thinking about college athletics, if I could place a magic, you know, wand in your hand and you could wave it and make changes um, to intercollegiate sports, you know, what would be a couple of those changes with your, with your perspective that you would choose to make? Well, uh, one more would be to continue along uh, making some very tangible um, changes with the way the uh, with the financial incentives, the way it's awarded in college sports, and the way the money is allocated. Yeah. And um, you know, I think the the, the concept of uh, realigning the incentives that that teams don't compete for national championships unless they're graduating half the players is just one example. Um, but uh, next year, the college football playoff uh, will bring in $500 million a year. Um, wow. and, and a lot of that, half of that is new money. Um, it's more than half of what the system has had in prior years. Now, that money is outside the NCAA. Hmm. Um, but using that as a, a very tangible example, um, I would make sure that uh, portions of that money are being um, designated uh, to strengthen the educational missions of the universities, yeah. to strengthen the educational missions of, of athletics, um, a component that, that uh, Positive Coaching Alliance does incredibly well and, and it is at the core of your mission is to, uh, is to build, uh, is to make youth sport coaches better. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, that's an example of, I think, in the college system, uh, more resources and attention needs to be paid to making sure that we're doing our very best to um, make the college coaches the best they can be, and not just with X's and O's, because there are great college coaches with X's and O's, and resources are already being devoted to that. But what are we doing um, to make sure that uh, college coaches see themselves as educators and as important um, in the role of the university's mission of education. So that's an area that, that I would want to see um, emphasized more and, and more resources put towards. Great. So those are just a couple of examples. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so, so I guess going, going back a little farther, I wanted to ask you one question about your time um, with the NBA. Um, I think you were the... Mm -hmm. The first female um, is it president of one of the D-League teams, the Fayetteville Patriots. And I was curious if you could just tell me a little bit about that experience as a woman and if you sort of viewed yourself as a role model um, for other women who are seeking leadership positions in professional sports and um, a little bit about that time. Sure, sure. That, that was um, a, a really interesting experience and um, as you noted, it, it was the very first year that the NBA started its D-League, um, its development league. So it was a, a men's basketball team, and I was recruited um, to serve as the team president of that team and to do that um, in, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which has a strong military presence, and, um, and, and that's what brought us back to North Carolina. And it was a great experience, a great learning experience. And the, the NBA has done a tremendous job of 
uh, recruiting and developing um, women and minorities to um, to for roles in front offices and training those individuals. And that was really the the purpose behind the D League was not only to and continues to be the purpose behind the D League to not only to train players but also to train uh, front office personnel. So mm. um, it was a it was a, a very good experience. Um, you know, personally, from my standpoint, I discovered through that well, not uh, I reaffirmed through that experience that my passion really is in college sports and not in pro sports. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I there were a, a number of things that experiences that um, I took away from that 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 have really helped me, uh, you know, throughout my career since then. But it, the D League continues to. Um, uh, continues to grow and, is, and still exists. A lot of people don't know that there actually is a minor league for the NBA. Um, and so it's been interesting to see its development as well. That's great. That's great. Well, I just have one more question. This one's really um, for our sports parents who are on the phone. And, you know, you've obviously been both a, a youth sports coach and, and a middle school coach, but also a sports parent for a long time. And I'm curious what advice um, you would give to youth sports parents to really help them um, make the most of their kids' youth, youth sports experience, which sometimes feels like it may go on a long time, but at any moment we know it could be over. And um, how do they mm-hmm. themselves as parents really enjoy it, and how do they help their kids get the most out of it? Right. Well, the first thing I would say is to sign up for the parent tips that you all do through responsible sports and and through your resources and to read them because they really are helpful and they've been uh, helpful to me as a a sports parent. Um, And again, just to keep things um, in the right perspective about, you know, that you're hoping this experience is going to help your child um, throughout life and that you know, 10 years from now, you're not going to remember if they won that particular club soccer game on the weekend, but you're going to remember if if that experience um, hurt hurt your son or daughter's confidence or helped mm-hmm. build your son or daughter's confidence. Yep. You're you're not you're not going to remember if your uh, daughter didn't make the perfect corner kick, but but you're going to remember whether or not when you talk about remember when we when you played on that club soccer team if if you, if if your daughter has a smile or a frown you know you're you're going to remember the 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 broader takeaways of that experience and not the specific things that happened in any one game so to really try to take a step back and and uh, before you make a comment about, you know, you really could have shown more effort mm-hmm. or, you know, something that's a criticism to really just think through what is it you want your son or daughter to get out of this experience for life. Yep, yep, the bigger picture. Well, Amy, um, thank you so much. I mean, this I've really enjoyed this and really appreciate your support of PCA as a National Advisory Board member, and clearly you're, you're walking the talk um, here um, for PCA and your sports parenting and your coaching, and we just feel so lucky to be affiliated with you and, and have you out there representing PCA. Well, thanks, Tina, and I am trying. 
But they're, you know, just just like we talk about with PCA, I make mistakes just like every every other coach and every other athlete. But we put mistakes behind us and we do our best the next time. So uh, I thank you all for your work and what you're doing and keep doing it. Thanks so much, Amy. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.